Let's read then God's Word together. We're going to read this morning from the book of Isaiah, and we're skipping ahead quite a few chapters and picking up the story of Isaiah chapter 40 and reading from the first verse. Isaiah writes, Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Say, the sovereign Lord comes with power and He rules with a mighty arm. See, His reward is with Him and His recompense accompanies Him. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them close to His heart. He gently leads those that have young. And then reading from verse 27. Oh, that's my fault. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those whose hope is in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Let's read then from the New Testament from Paul's letter to the Romans, famous words from chapter 8, and reading from verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for all of us. How will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? 
Who will bring any charge against those that God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then will, is he who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither powers no, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither the height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. These verses from Isaiah speak and remind us of the sheer power of God that moves mountains and raises valleys. Let's pray. Father, as we come to reflect this morning on Your Word, we ask that You would remind our hearts of its good news, that You would remind our minds of its truth, and that You would let Your Spirit speak to us through Your Word. Amen. Isaiah begins in chapter 40 with words that we perhaps are familiar with where it simply says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Comfort. I wonder what that word comfort conjures up in your minds as you think about it. It's a bit of a fuzzy word actually, comfort, isn't it? Something is, is comforting. It, it maybe comes to mind uh, comfort food. Uh, that, that fish supper or that chocolate suddenly sounds good, doesn't it? It just makes me feel good. Or your creature comforts, somebody bringing you a pair of slippers when you've had a hard day. Or, you know, something that just comes and, and, and makes you feel better. We all like comforts, don't we? We like someone to comfort us. And when you say you're going to comfort somebody, what does that mean? It, it, it usually means that somebody comes along and says nice, encouraging things to you. Maybe gives you a card when you're having a hard time, and, and it's comforting. A hug a nice word, things that direct us away from what's painful and difficult to feeling better ourselves. The thing about comfort is it often implies something that's not really a solution. It's more of a gesture to make you feel better. It doesn't actually address the underlying problem. It just sort of tells you it'll be all right. Pat on the head. In fact, sometimes comfort is where people say things that they actually you, they don't really believe it. You know, you have people saying comforting things like, oh, don't worry, it, it'll, it'll get better. How, how do they know that? You know, folks say sometimes things that just aren't true. I, I, I was with a family where they had lost somebody and, and, and they were telling the children, Granny's going to be a star. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? But you don't need to be an astronomer to know it's rubbish. But it maybe made somebody feel better. But it, and comfort's a wee bit like that sometimes. It's somebody coming in and, and they're trying to make you feel better, but actually it's not a solution. It's just some nice words. 
And so when Isaiah starts with those words, comfort, comfort my people, we maybe think of a sort of, it's going to be like a Hallmark card that's coming along next with a, a bit of a hug and, and, and make you feel better. But then it goes somewhere entirely different. Because it begins by saying, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. Now, the image that we've got here now is not somebody patting somebody on the head. It's actually tremendous, earth-shaking power. It's seismic activity. It's mountain-shattering, valley-raising power. It's God blasting a hole in everything. It's literally words that are spoken to people that were a long way from home. They were in Babylon at this point. We'll come back to that later. They were miles away from home. There was a whole desert and wilderness between them and their home. And here comes the power of God that says, I'm going to punch right through all of this. That's what I'm bringing you so that you can go home. This isn't a hallmark cliche. This is a promise of a world transformed. This is a lover in God who is saying, I will move every obstacle that comes between me and you, and I will do all of this for you. Whatever holds you back, whatever is destroying your life, whatever is keeping you down, I'm not going to pat you on the head with some nice little cliche. I'm going to punch right through it. That's a little bit of a different type of comfort, isn't it? The power of God. You know, there is a a story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you, do you know The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? It's a children's book, but if you haven't read it, go back and read it because C.S. Lewis was talking about very deep truths. And in this story, the children find themselves in Narnia. And you think, that's nice. But actually, Narnia was a pretty awful place that they found themselves. It was a land of eternal winter where it was never Christmas, says C.S. Lewis. And it was a land under the control of a hateful, oppressive queen. And as they get there, they meet a guy called Mr. Beaver, who was a, well, a beaver. And as they, as they meet Mr. Beaver, Mr. Beaver, who's quite terrified of everything that's there, starts to tell them of Narnia's hope. Aslan, the lion. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, Despite the winter and the oppression and everything that's wrong, the beaver says, Aslan is on the move. They say, perhaps he has already landed. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say that now a curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everybody felt quite different. The name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sense of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if somebody, some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling that you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Aslan they say, is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. And of course, C.S. Lewis is pointing to the Christian hope in Jesus. No matter how things are bad, we believe that Jesus is on the move. God 
is working through his son, and he is blasting away through everything. That's the Christian hope. Now, to give you a bit of context of where we are in the story of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, and that's the ones we've been dabbling in up till now, were all about events that happened in the lifetime of Isaiah from about, for those interested in dates, from about 740 B.C. to about 660, 86 B.C. B.C.s are always difficult because you're counting backwards. I always find that difficult. Now, can you imagine that when you, if you were living in B.C. times and the year kept going down? It didn't work like that. It's all right. But anyway, the, the first part of Isaiah, Isaiah is giving encouragement to the kings of Israel, kings of Judah rather, that they should trust God. There is Assyria, the superpower on the march, and they are tempted to make alliances with other nations. But, but Isaiah keeps telling them, no, you must trust God. And chapter 39 ends with the death of the last of those kings, the king of Judah called Hezekiah. Now, when we open chapter 40, we find the second half of Isaiah, the last 27 chapters, have actually fast-forwarded about 150 years. About 150 years. That Assyrian empire has fallen to an empire called Babylon. And Babylon has by this time actually come and destroyed Jerusalem and carried its people off into exile. So it's a terrible time. It's a time of always winter. It's a time where Jerusalem has been destroyed, where the people have been deported, where the temple that was the hope of God's presence among them is no more, where the line of David, that line of kings, has been ended. The stump, we haven't got it there just now, has been cut off. In fact, the last of the kings, it's a terrible story, Zedekiah, the last of the kings, watched as his own children were put to death, and then after that had his eyes put out, so that the last thing he saw was that sign of terror. It's an awful time. God's judgment has fallen on His people. All the curses that were promised in the book of Deuteronomy, if they did wrong, have all fallen down on their heads. And so Isaiah, second part, is written at a time where a great hope is needed. Now, there's a disagreement at how we read Isaiah. Is this Isaiah 150 years beforehand, seeing all these empires changing and prophesying hope to a, a people yet to come who will be in this terrible situation? Or is this people 150 years later, students as it were, disciples of Isaiah, thinking, remember what that guy said 150 years ago? How does God use that word to speak to us today? You can take it either way. Whichever way it is, it's talking about God's comfort, God's good news coming to people in a different situation. And it's a reminder that although we read these events from, from years before, they are still truths that God speaks into our day by His Word. And there are two things that this particular chapter teaches us about the hope that God brings to us in the gospel. And the first is, it's true. It's true. It's not a hallmark card. It's not a cliche to make us feel better. This is what our God does. And the second is, it's good news. You see, 
What it says as this passage comes is Isaiah is saying this. You know, things are a mess right now. They're an awful mess. We're not going to deny that and just move off and talk about good things. We're actually going to speak right into the darkness and the pain and the injustice and the sense of being alone and everything looking hopeless. And the second truth that we're going to speak, and you'll find this in Isaiah right through, is that Isaiah doesn't hold back where he says, do you know what? What's happened to you is your own fault. Why does that matter? You see, often when there's failure in our lives, the folk that seek to comfort us don't tell us the truth. So we come into a difficult situation and we're ending up saying to someone, you're doing fine. You're okay. There's no need to change. It's not your fault. And sometimes that's true, isn't it? We, we sometimes find folk that are, are, are suffering very often, and it is not their fault at all. But there's other times where we think that's actually not the truth. We say that there's nothing you could have done. And we think, well, yes, there is. You could have made different choices, and you wouldn't have ended up there. Don't be so hard on yourself. Well, why not? You couldn't have possibly have known, but sometimes you're looking and think, but you should have. You know, one of the problems that we have, and more generally with, with brokenness, is that when we, when we are meeting people who's, who, who, are, who are broken, and particularly those who are doing things that are not good, we tend to do one of two things. We either lie to them because we don't want to confront things, and we, we want to evade the truth. We want to do, don't have an awkward situation. You know, if, I, if I say that, it'll, it'll all get very awkward. So I'll say something that's not quite true because it'll just make everybody feel better. And we give them false comfort. Or we tell them the truth, <laughs> but we don't do it out of love. We do it in order to pull them down. And you see an awful lot of that, don't you? People that just, they're going to tell you exactly what they think, but they're not doing that in order to help you. They're doing that in order to wound you, in order to score a point. But here's the amazing thing about the gospel. The gospel comes and it tells us the truth. It makes us look in the mirror. It confronts us with everything that isn't right, with everything that we've done that's wrong, with everything that's broken in our society, in our culture, and ourselves. But it does it from a place of absolute love, speaking the truth in love. And by the way, as we speak to other folk, as we look at people who sometimes are not doing things that are right around us, we need to do the same thing. Be willing to speak the truth, but always do it in love. How is this helping and building up and correcting my brother or my sister? So much, we say today, is either not true or it's not loving. We need to aim for both, for that is what the gospel does for us. God's Word always shows us uncomfortable things. Sometimes it takes people who are too comfortable and shakes them up and makes them uncomfortable, but it does it out of a place of love. Look at verse 6 
in what we've read. By the way, I, I'm flicking this around. You might find as I, as I preach like this, you, you, it's more helpful to have the Bible open in front of you. So again, I would encourage you, if you're able to, and if it, if it helps you, bring a Bible with you when you come to church. Verse 6 says this, cry out, or we might say preach. That's what Isaiah is saying. And, and the, the reply comes, what shall I cry? And the next bit comes, all people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. Well, that's not very comforting, is it? You're all rubbish and temporal. And, and that can mean, flowers of the field and people are like grass can mean reminding us that we're mortal and we, you know, we, we, we frail as summer's flowers, we flourish, blows the wind and it is gone. You know, you know those words. But actually, that's not the context here. What the context here is saying is we are inconsistent. One minute we say, I love God, I want to follow Him, I want to serve Him, and the next minute, pfft. Are you like that? I'm like that. Yeah? It's, it's showing us the real truth of who we are. Even the most committed Christian blows hot and cold. They, one minute they're fired up for Jesus and praising His name in church, and the next minute they're saying something awful, sometimes before they even got to the door of the church. That's what we're like. But there's good news, and the good news is twofold. One is that God knows you're like that, and He still loves you. He's not going to give up on you because you keep letting Him down. And the second thing is God is the mountain man who is going to move everything despite our unfaithfulness. And so, the prophet says, get up and bring good news. Here's the interesting thing in this particular verse, in verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, which is just another word for Jerusalem, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Now, the context of this is that this has been spoken to God's people who are in Babylon in exile. And what has happened is that there is Historically, good news just at that point because Babylon has fallen to the Persian Empire and the king of Persia has a different policy and he's actually saying to the people, you can go home. I think that's good news. But good news to Zion and good news to Jerusalem. Think back what they're looking at because if you were to go up on a high mountain at that point and look at Jerusalem, you would see a heap of ruins. That city had been destroyed. That city was the ruin of the temple and the ruin of everything else. And the towns of Judah were ghost towns. And this good news that comes from God is being proclaiming in the midst of a brokenness that cannot be hidden. It's not a bunch of people coming and saying, you know, wonderful, we can go home and look what we can achieve and, and look what we can do and let's pat you on the head. It's fantastic. You're, you're with the strength of your religion. You can do all these wonderful things and, and let's make you feel good. This is the Word of God coming and saying, things are utterly broken and I'm going to take you back to the place of complete brokenness and there by my Spirit, we're going to rebuild. You need to do Exactly what the kings didn't do in the past, you're going to have to rely completely on the mountain-moving, valley-leveling God who can do all this by His power. Aslan is on the move, and in that comes hope. You know, the other sense of the gospel is that it reminds us 
that our hope comes from God being there for us right now, but it also comes because God is working out a future plan that we are part of. It's not just God helping us to get through this year or next year or the presbytery plan. It's the Lord who has a plan that goes on and on into all eternity when the Lord Jesus will return and reign over all things. And this is really important because chapter 40, unsurprisingly, follows chapter, guess, 39. Yeah, numbers, we'll go backwards. But anyway, and in chapter 39, verse 5, um, I haven't put this on there, never mind. Chapter 39, verse 5, God says to the king at that time, Hezekiah, he says to him, days are coming when all the treasures in your palace will be carried off to Babylon, nothing will be left, some of your descendants will be made eunuchs and made slaves in Babylon. Terrible news of what's going to happen 150 years later. And Hezekiah's response to it is, the word that you've spoken is good. And you think, what? How can that be good news? That's awful news. But Hezekiah goes on to say, it's good news because you've just told me it won't happen in my lifetime. See what he's saying? I'm all right, Jack. I'm okay. He's not looking at God's big picture. He's simply looking at, what does this mean for me, where I am? That's all that's going to matter to me. And sometimes we can be a little bit like that. We can fail to see God's big plan, and we're just really concerned about me getting through my day. Now, that's a bit understandable, but let me show you one, one example of that just now in presbytery planning. I know it's an awful word, but it, it gives a good illustration. What are we dealing with as we look at presbytery planning? Let me give you the big picture. What we're looking at is the future of the Church of Scotland. What we're looking at is bigger than that. It's about how on earth do we reach a nation that has lost its hope in Jesus? How on earth do we make a church which is growing older and older and older suddenly relate to the generations that are to come? How on earth do we manage to resource mission to do all of that? And it's actually bigger than that. It's how on earth do we make sure that the church and the Word of God grows in Scotland beyond anything that's here? But I'll be honest, what my response is when I read plans is, what does that mean for me? And I wonder that a lot of us don't get much beyond this. Is my church still going to be there for me to go to? Yeah? We're missing the big picture, folks. We're missing the big picture. Because the privilege is not that we get to go to the church we've always gone to. That might happen. The privilege is that we get to be part of God's amazing plan that we're trying to discern as we go together to make the whole of Scotland hear the good news of the gospel. To see generations as yet unborn come to know the Lord God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the big picture. And that's what it's needed. And that means that we need to do and think so much bigger. It's one of the reasons that when we gather as Christians in church every Sunday, we, we, yes, we, we say here is a place where we will find forgiveness. Here is a place that we will find comfort. Here is a place that we will find the hope that helps us go on. 
but it's also a place where we talk about the brokenness of the society around us. It's where we talk about injustice. It's where as part of the world church, we, we feel the pain of what's going on in other places. It's where we think about governments because our religion isn't just about, well, it's comforting for me. I'm okay, Jack. It's actually to see the big picture of God's plan in a broken world to move the mountains and raise the valleys and make everything new again. That is the good news. Aslan is on the move. Jesus is the answer. And Jesus is coming. And He is making all things new. And so we move past our little hope into God's big, big, big hope. And again, that's one of the reasons that Isaiah, as we begin to see it speaking into events 150 years apart, we begin to get a bigger idea. Because actually the focus in all of these things is on something greater. We've already seen glimmers in the first chapters of how it points beyond what God is going to do in Hezekiah's day to the day that God will bring a king that will bring peace to all the nations. And as we look at the last part of Isaiah, we will see this king comes as one who will suffer to make all things new. And that king, of course, is Jesus in whom we find all comfort. You know, in our day, it's the same. We can look at the despair in our generation. We can look at the state of the church. And, you know, I can tell you in encouraging things, just like to people in the first part of Isaiah, they were told that Hezekiah would come and he'd be a better king and things would be better under him. And in the second half of Isaiah, people were being told that they were going to be able to go back home and, and Cyrus was going to, to let them do that. And I can give you encouraging things for our day too. By the way, the church that seems to be shrinking is actually growing. The Christian church throughout the world is growing faster than it's ever grown in any point in its history. Countries that didn't know the gospel are being opened up. Millions are coming to faith in China, in Africa, and in other places. The church is growing like never before. And by the way, the missionaries are going to come to Scotland, and they're going to come from Ghana, and they're going to come from Ethiopia, and they're going to come from China. And that is the future. Encouraging things. If you come tonight and we hear what's going on in, in the church in Bishop Briggs, and we could tell the same stories in other places, we can be encouraged that Aslan is on the move, even in the church in Scotland, even in the church of Scotland. People are coming to faith, and God is changing lives. But our hope isn't in those things, ultimately. Our hope isn't in that there are some encouraging things going on. Our hope is that all these little things point to the one big thing, that God has sent Jesus Christ into the world, that sins might be forgiven, that the brokenness might be healed, that the injustice might end, and that all things might be new. And as we come to Him, we find hope. We find true and real comfort. Let's pray.